The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. A true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you were there at the beginning. The very word of God the Father. Through you, the Father spoke all things into existence. You came among us to save us and to redeem us, to call us by name, to make us your own. And we gather here today in your praise. We thank you for your life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We pray that as we hold these things before us this morning, that we would magnify your name and be transformed to look more and more like you, our risen Lord. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Twenty-five years ago, I worked for a gentleman named John Stott, who was a chaplain to Queen Elizabeth II. This was an honorary role, but it did come with some real responsibilities. John would lead worship in the royal chapels. He would meet with the queen on occasion. And sometimes he would join the royal family for Christmas or for Easter. But one Easter, long before I worked for him, John was invited to spend the weekend with the queen and her family at Sandringham. After preaching on Sunday morning, he joined them for Easter lunch on a spacious patio overlooking the palace grounds. But as he made his way from the well-stocked buffet table to his seat, he stumbled and he nearly fell. The dinner tray that he was carrying tumbled from his hands, sending its contents into a dozen different directions. John was frozen with alarm and embarrassment. Before he could even apologize, a figure was at his feet on hands and knees, gathering the broken dishes and reassuring him not to worry. When he looked down, he saw that it was the queen. Now, there have been many tributes to Queen Elizabeth this past week, but I can think of no other vignette that captures her character so well. This was a woman who made a vow at 25 
to serve her country and commonwealth. And it was a vow that she kept for seven decades. Her sense of commitment, her integrity, and her spirit of humility, they all flowed directly from her faith in Jesus Christ. Now this in a nutshell is what our passage is all about this morning. It's about the unexpected glory of humility and the power of following the example of Jesus. Our reading from Philippians picks up at the beginning of chapter 2. You can find it on page 980 in those red Bibles, and I hope you'll turn there with me. This passage contains one of the most stirring and well-known descriptions of Jesus' ministry ever written. And that description, it's dropped down into the middle of a very practical exhortation on how to live. What is it that Paul wants for his friends in Philippi and thereby for us as he describes the ministry of Jesus? What is it that he wants? Well, he wants three things. Paul wants for us to share the mind of Christ, to follow the example of Christ, and to bow before the majesty of Christ. And those are going to be our headings this morning as we explore the meaning of this incredible passage. So the first thing that Paul wants for us is to share the mind of Christ. I want you to listen again to verses 1 through 5, and I want you to notice two things. First, the logic of what Paul is saying, and second, the repetition of the word mind. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So as this chapter begins, Paul is in the middle of a thought, and it's one that he introduced back in verse 27 of chapter 1 with the words, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul wants his friends to live in such a way that honors Jesus. And as that thought continues here at the beginning of chapter 2, he motivates them by reminding them of the benefits and blessings of their relationship with Jesus. I think we sometimes forget what an amazing thing it is to have been brought into fellowship with the Son of God. In Jesus, we are encouraged, meaning that our hearts are made strong. Through him, we receive the unconditional love of the God who made us. With him, we participate in the very being of God through the gift of his Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And by his ministry, we experience the affection and the sympathy of a God who calls us by name and meets us in our darkest moments. So as he urges them on to humble obedience, Paul wants his friends to remember just how good it is to be called a child of God and a friend of Jesus. He wants to make sure they understand that the Christian life is not about earning something. It's about being grateful for what we've already been given. 
And so he reminds them of these things as he calls them deeper into fellowship with Jesus. And it's a fellowship that will be both costly and glorious. We might call this the ethics of gratitude. The ethics of gratitude. And that is what provides the logic of Paul's argument as he focuses our attention on the mind of Christ and urges us to share it. So three times in these verses, Paul refers to the mind of Christ. He's mentioned it already at the beginning of this section back in chapter 1, verse 27, and he's going to come back to it multiple times throughout the letter. It's an important concept for him. But what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, clearly Paul isn't just talking about what we know. He's talking about our entire imagination, how we see and perceive the world. Notice how he puts together same love and one mind in verse 2. This is about our affections just as much as it is about our ability to reason. He's referring to our whole mindset, our whole way of seeing the world, and how it must conform to the mindset of Christ himself. Well, the first thing that Paul does is he shows us what the mind of Christ is not. In verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, these are two fascinating words in the original Greek. The meaning of the first, translated selfish ambition, was a word that was used to describe the pursuit of personal political advancement without regard for anyone else. Sounds very familiar in this day and age, doesn't it? This word, it speaks to a kind of mercenary mentality where you are the center of the universe and everyone around you plays a, a supporting role to your advancement. The second word, translated as conceit, is a compound word that literally means empty glory. Empty glory. And it's a reference to what you get when you pursue your own selfish ambitions. You may succeed in your pursuit, but what you gain is false, meaningless, and empty. Paul's telling his friends that personal ambition in the name of so-called success will net you nothing and damage those around you. That is not the mind of Christ. But, Paul continues, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Here he begins to build out a positive description of the mind of Jesus, but he does so by using a shockingly negative term and calling us to a radical reorientation of our priorities. So when Paul wrote this letter, the term humility was used only in a pejorative sense. In the Roman world, it meant weakness, cowardice, cowardice and servility. So in the eyes of the Romans, anyone described as humble was a sniveling weakling. Now, clearly, Paul did not think Jesus was a weakling, so why describe him this way? Well, the word humility is another compound word in the original Greek that combines the word lowly with the word mind that we've already seen three times in this passage. Now, this, this may seem like a pretty technical detail. We're really deep into Greek grammar here. But it gives us the key to understanding the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is lowly, unselfish, 
and other seeking. It moves down so that others might be lifted up. And this manner of thinking, this way of orienting oneself to the world has consequences. So Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So does this mean that other people are are better than we are? No. This isn't a commentary on our value compared to others. It's a word about our standard of care for others. It means that we are meant to see the needs of others as more important than our own. So humility, it doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking more of other people. It's not the negation of oneself. It's the offering of oneself for the good of others. So notice that humility, it's not passive, nor is it weak. It actively seeks the good of others. As Paul makes clear, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility, it teaches us to see the world differently. And this brings us to a question How do you see the people around you? How do you see the people you come into contact with every day? Do you see them as God's beloved creatures with needs and interests that you might be able to meet? Or do you see them through the filter of your own self-interest as a means to meeting your own needs and your own desires? Now, I'm I'm gonna get you to use your imaginations here. I want you to imagine that you have a heads-up display that appears in your normal field of vision, kind of like the high-tech cockpit display in the new Top Gun movie, okay? I know you've all seen it, some of you three times. Instead of acquiring targets, however, your display acquires people. And next to every face that comes into your field of vision. Next to every face, there appears a name and a brief assessment reflecting your immediate thoughts upon seeing them. Are you getting nervous? (laughs) Now, the default setting of your heads-up display is self-interest. And here's what pops up as you walk into the lobby for a cup of coffee after church. Ronald, bad breath, boring, minimum 10-minute conversation, avoid. (laughs) Debbie, wealthy, may get you an invite to that dinner, pursue. (laughs) Betsy, incessantly complains, avoid at all costs. What's his name? Easy company, good alternative to Betsy, engage. (laughs) New guy. Friend of Joe's, expensive suit, file for later. Edward, good Lord, run. (laughs) Now your heads up display comments may be different, but we all work this way. When we see other people through the filter of our own self-interest, we view them either as obligations or opportunities for personal advancement. But when we put on the mind of Christ, and we learn to count others more significant than ourselves, we learn to look to their interests before we look to our own. 
So imagine what your heads-up display would look like if the filter was set to the mind of Christ. Fran, lonely, battling depression, find time for lunch. Rick, you hurt his feelings last week, apologize. Nancy, three kids, sleep-deprived, overwhelmed, send DoorDash call on Tuesday. Now, these examples are pretty simplistic, and the illustration itself is ridiculous, but I think you get the point. How do you see the people around you? Is your filter, your heads-up display set to self-interest, or is it set to the mind of Christ? Well, let's get back to our text. In these opening lines of chapter 2, Paul reminds us just how good it is to be called children of God. And he urges us to put on the mind of Christ as we seek to love and care for one another. This means seeing people differently and putting their needs before your own, but it's just the beginning. Paul wants us not only to share the mind of Christ, but to follow the example of Christ. And that's the focus of verses 5 through 8, and it's the second topic we'll tackle as we break down this passage. Listen again to Paul's incredible description of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's really intimidating as a preacher to preach on a paragraph like that. You just feel like you should stand in silence and let the word speak for itself. So we learn from our gospel reading in John 1 that Jesus was always one with God the Father. He was there at the beginning, the word of God who brought forth the creation of God. Equality with God, therefore, has always been his so when Paul says that Jesus didn't view equality with God a thing to be grasped, he's not talking about Jesus seeking out something that he didn't have. He's talking about how Jesus handled the glory that he already possessed, and that was with an open hand. For Jesus to grasp his divine status would have been to cling to it to hold up a closed fist to creation where all the power of his divinity was held in place for his own benefit. But that's not the character of God. The character of God is to create with an open hand. When Jesus empties himself, therefore, it's not that he sets aside his divine character. He never stops being God. Rather, he sets aside his status and he steps into the position of a servant. He becomes a man. He's still the creator, but also now a creature with all of the limitations that go with being one of us. When Jesus stepped down from the throne room of heaven, he got down on his hands and knees at our feet in order to pick up the shattered remnants of our humanity, and he did it as a servant. One of the most powerful moments of Queen Elizabeth's funeral, it took place in silence as the scepter, orb, and crown were removed from her casket and placed on the altar at Westminster Abbey. These were the signs of her office and the marks of her authority, and they were placed on the altar in preparation 
for being handed over to another, to her successor. Now, the circumstances are, of course, different, but I think we can understand Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in a similar way. When he became one of us, he set his crown into the hands of God the Father, handed over the scepter and the orb, and took on the status of a slave. And when he rose from the dead, the Father welcomed him back into the heavens by setting the crown on his head and placing the scepter and the oar back in his hands as king and ruler of all. Now, Paul says specifically that Jesus emptied himself. Now, again, Jesus doesn't empty himself of his divine character. We see his divine power on display throughout his life and ministry. Rather, he empties himself of any pursuit of his own glory. So you remember our little vocabulary lesson around the word conceit in verse 3. It meant empty glory. It's what we seek when we are the center of the world. Well, the description of Jesus emptying himself, it stands in direct and stark contrast to the empty glory that we so often seek. It means that he sought the glory of God instead which is where Paul takes us at the end of the passage in verse 11. Everything Jesus does is done for the glory of God the Father. What do we do with this incredible description of Jesus' ministry? Well, Paul wants us to take it to heart and to model our lives on Jesus. That's pretty overwhelming. I want to give you an image to consider and a direction to head in, just as a place to begin. The image is of an open hand. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he opened his hand, eventually to receive the wound of a nail. We all have something to give. Some have money, others have power. Some have time, others affection. Some have the gift of presence, others the gift of wisdom. We all have something to give, and we can either hold on to it for our own gain, or we can open our hands for the good of those around us. That's the image I want you to take away. There's also a direction to head in. Have you noticed the movement of Jesus' ministry? It's, it's been a thread throughout our whole service. Go back and look at the psalm we read together. How God humbled himself. Jesus moves down from the glory of heaven to the humble form of a servant on earth. He practices what can only be described as downward mobility. He puts himself in a position to love and to serve. And by calling us to follow him, he invites us to share this downward mobility. Now, this is not an invitation to false humility. It's an invitation to be so jealous for the good of other people and so unwavering in your pursuit of their good that you seek out new ways to serve them. That's the direction that we've been called to head in together. Paul longs for us to share the mind of Christ and to follow the example of Christ. And so he paints for us this incredible picture of the ministry of Jesus. I have to confess, though, 
that the more time I spend in this passage, the more difficult it seems and the more intimidated I get. I know how selfish I am, how hard it is to change. And frankly, I know how costly it is to serve other people. How can I possibly get from where I am to where I'm supposed to be? Well, the answer is in the text, albeit implicitly. As Paul draws this hymn about Jesus to a conclusion, the final thing that that Paul wants from us is that he wants for us to bow before the majesty of Jesus. So verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only way, the only way we are going to learn to follow Jesus' example is by falling on our knees to worship him. We become humble not by focusing on our inadequacies or even on the needs of others, but by contemplating the cross of Jesus. He set aside his throne for you. He, formed, he, he assumed the form of a servant for you. He suffered and he died for you. He rose and ascended and took up his throne once again for you. All of this he did in order to save you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy, complete Paul's joy, complete the joy of God the Father by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we come before you in worship. We praise you for your glory. We praise you for your humility. Would your glory, would your cross, would your humility be always before us that we might have your mind and follow your example. We pray this for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.